Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley. And my name is Jay Swords. This is our 406th show of ROI. And our guest for today's show is Dr. Glenn Story, Associate Professor of Classics at the University of Iowa. And we're going to be talking about the archaeology of ancient cities. The history buffs for today's show are Brett Menard and Terry Toppler. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Zapp Zappital. And our producer and engineer, as always, is Dave Baker. This is the opening segment of the show called Farouk Denaren. And today we'll be talking about the archaeology of ancient cities with Dr. Glenn Story, Associate Professor of Classics at the University of Iowa. Welcome to the show, Dr. Glenn. Hi, thank you very much. Uh, do you mind if we call? Here. Do you mind if we call you Glenn? You may call me Glenn. Thank you very much. Can you give our listeners a little bit of a background on the way that you came to pick and uh, study this topic? <laughs> well, okay. Um, I'm half Mexican, and when I was a child, my parents took me to see relatives in Mexico, and that gave me the archaeology bug bug when we went to big cities. And when I was eight years old, I visited the city of the ruins of Teotihuacan, about 46 kilometers northeast of Mexico City. And then my oldest sister, Rebecca, who's a professor at the University of Houston, she was an archaeologist also, and she excavated in Teotihuacan, and that was my, I went to assist her, and that was my first archaeological um, experience. I had also studied classics, and I was uh, focused on the city of Rome, and Rome was the largest city in the old world for a while, and Teotihuacan was the largest city in the new world. So I just started thinking about the two of them together, and that's kind of how I got interested in ancient cities. Okay, so let's kind of start with the basics here. Um, how do we define a city? Because I think we all kind of take for granted, you know, sort of I know it when I see it, um, but, but what kind of professional definition do we have for a city, and are there multiple definitions? And to add on that, what's the difference between a city and a community, if I may ask? Oh, great. Yep, these are excellent <laughs> questions. And you said, uh, I know it when I see it. And I'm, I'm sorry, but in my book, that's what I cop out and say. It, it is in the eye of the beholder, um, because there is no definition that satisfies everyone, right? The, there's, no, there's no way to say uh, definitively, particularly for an ancient place, this is a city and another place isn't. Of course, I'll have an opinion about that, and, and my, um, my way to qualify the eye and the beholder is to say, this is how we're going to look at it, particularly for archaeologists who study ancient cities. It is a city if the people who know the site and study the culture think it is. Okay, that's the first step, but there's a second step is that the rest of us who study cities worldwide, we have to agree. And if we kind of don't agree, then the, uh, the status of the ancient site as a city is kind of up in the air. 
And an excellent example of this is right here in the Midwest, where the site of Cahokia in East St. Louis in Illinois, uh, I would say that there are a lot of North American archaeologists who say that place is a city, but there are a number of us, including myself, who kind of doubt its status as a city. So it doesn't um, uh, fit the, the definition that I give. Of course, nobody has to agree with my definition <laughs> because we don't have one. I would say a rough rule of thumb, though, is that you have to have a community that has maybe several thousand people and a density of 500 to above that persons per square kilometer. That would be a rough rule of thumb for me is saying, okay, I'm, I'm beginning to think that this, this community, this nucleation of humans may be a city. Okay. So with being that you've put down kind of that template, okay. um, obviously different um, regions throughout the world have different um, makeups, whether it's in resources or food or climate or whatever. So I guess I'm asking is that from what you put your premise there is, are there some times where you look at something and say, okay, this is my premise, and oh, I don't know. It's as you kind of said, it's like a crapshoot. Um, I guess I'm asking, are there some that kind of weave in and out of this? Because it sounds like this is such a vague definition that there's going to be a lot of ups and downs with us understanding. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That That is the problem. And one of the things that I'm worried about is um, if we expand the definition of a city too far, we kind of blur the distinction between simpler kinds of nucleation communities and then what we have in a city. So basically what I would say is that when we look worldwide at places that were cities, um, the thing that distinguishes them is that the institutions that integrate them are no longer based purely on kinship. Most simple communities, nucleations of villages, uh, the great majority of institutions that integrate people are purely based on kinship. When you get to a community that's so large that not everybody is related to everybody else or, you know, just a handful of kinship groups, then there's an institution that integrates them <clears throat> in some other way than kinship. And that's when you have what, what I would call an urban context. Okay, so one of the chapters in your book that I really enjoyed was talking about the difference between primary and secondary cities. So can you kind of explain that a little better and give us an example of each? Okay, well... The the terminology comes from what we call primary and secondary civilizations. There are seven primary civilizations around the world. And what I mean by a primary is that this is where state-level institutions, civilizations, and cities arise. And they are Mesopotamia, Egypt, the Indus Valley, now in Pakistan, uh, North China, the Yellow River region, um, Mesoamerica in Mexico and, and Central America, 
uh, the Andes civilizations in Peru and surrounding countries. And the seventh that has lately been added is Polynesia, and particularly Hawaii was probably a state before Captain Cook got there. Um, okay, so those are the primary ones. But we know of many secondary ones that come later, like Greece and Rome being the, the best examples. Uh, the Aztecs are a secondary civilization in Mesoamerica. But what it looks like is, is that the, um, the origin of those are, are pretty much the same. And uh, cities like Teotihuacan, which I would call the primary city, is very similar to Tenochtitlan, which was uh, the Aztec capital, now Mexico City. One is primary, one is secondary, but the way they come about is pretty much the same. Okay. Um, to take that step a little further, because you've mentioned a lot of regions throughout the world, um, what about, um, I'm surprised that there wasn't any secondary in uh, sub-Sahara or northern Africa? I mean, I know you have Egypt as a primary. But oh, yeah, but there are. There are. Um, uh, Africa is full of secondary okay. uh, cities, even though, you know, uh, Egypt is primary and and probably new and certainly Nubian cities are primary also. But if you go uh, to East Africa and then across uh, Western Africa, those may well be secondary, like Jene uh, Geno in Nigeria. Okay. Um, those are probably secondary cities coming out of a very strong urban tradition in East Africa. Okay. Okay. Um, Glenn, this is going to be the last question for this segment. Um, okay. You used two, two terms in your book, uh, hypercities and hypocities. What's right. the difference between the two? Well, it's, it, the Greek term hyper means over the top, and hypo means under, like hypodermic means under the skin. All right? So hyper-urban uh, is referring to the cities that we've always known that were very dense, populous, and crowded, like Rome, like Teotihuacan, like Chang'an in China. Um, what has become clear is that there are a whole range of communities archaeologically identified around the world that are not like that. And many archaeologists in the past didn't think they were cities. The best example of this are the Maya cities. But I think they are cities because they have non-kin integrating institutions and they are very low density. Um, Africa has a number of these, and I use the, Af the Congolese term banza to refer to these, which is kind of a giant village. But they have thousands of people. They're too big to be villages, but they're very low density. They're, they're spread out quite a bit. And the downtown Tikal in the Maya region uh, has a, a, a downtown density of only 600 persons per square kilometer, whereas hyper-urban cities are at least 1,000 per square kilometer and often a lot higher, 10 or 20,000 persons per square kilometer in the ancient world. All right. Well, we have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KLA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. The 
88.5 FM website keeps you up to date with everything KALA, including a complete program schedule for 88.5 and 106.1 FM. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley. And my name is Jay Swords. This is the second segment of our show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest today is Dr. Glenn Story, Associate Professor of Classics at the University of Iowa, and we're talking about the archaeology of ancient cities. Our history buffs for today's show are Brett Menard and Terry Toppler. And Brett, as a specialist in ancient medieval history, you get the first question. Thanks. So what are some common features between all of these cities? I'm thinking of things like... um, a water supply that would support this level of population density. What are some yeah, so, other things? Yeah, well, um, you know, water supply is the first and most important thing. And it's notable that many of the, the primary civilizations and cities are on rivers. Um, so, of course, having water is an important thing. And, and Rome became a hyper-urban place because of the outstanding water delivery system in the aqueducts, which still delivers clean water to Rome. Um, but there are, the, the main thing that ties them all together would have to be monumental construction in durable material, mostly stone. Um, this really is the thing that catches everybody's attention archaeologically and otherwise, is these huge structures that we so admire because they're amazing and um, they represent uh, uh, both a human organizational capacity and then just the, uh, the labor of many, many people to construct them. But, uh, uh, um, oh, all right, the other thing that makes a city, and this, this is where there might be pushback. I've already had pushback from students when I talk about this. I think cities are defined by the fact that they have distinct neighborhoods and that villages don't really have those. uh, uh, Nucleations that don't have distinct neighborhoods are probably not cities. But I have students from small towns in Iowa who (laughs) kind of push back on that because they think there are neighborhoods in those places. But even there, you know, in the United States, if you have 2,500 people, you have a city. Okay. Terry. Yes, uh, Glenn, in the um, ancient cities that you discuss in your book, The Archaeology of Ancient Cities, were there similar rites of dedication or sanctification for choosing the site of those cities? Oh, that's a great question, because, wow, um, you know, that's, that's, that's one of the most important uh, features of cities is their religious um, significance and and the ritual that goes along with them. Rome is a great example because really Rome is supposed to have started when Romulus traced uh, the uh, the sacred furrow around the Palatine Hill. I you know I'm not sure that that ever really happened, but the Romans thought it did, and so that's what made it important and. And uh, Fustel de Coulanges in 1864 said that, that Rome was created when it was a religious act. 
And, you know, you think about other examples in the modern, in the modern context. Um, you know, Salt Lake City is, is founded when Joseph Smith comes across uh, Parley's Canyon, sees the Salt Lake Valley and says, this is the place and then uh, lays out a grid a week later. So um, every city has its sacred um, aspects, and many of them goes, go back to founding rituals, whether mythical or historical. Okay. Um, Glenn, I'm going to kind of piggyback on that then. So okay. how do cities get started? Um, do, do cities happen organically? We just get a number of villages in close proximity of each other and eventually they sort of blend. Are they um, created where, you know, somebody like you were talking about, um, you know, Brigham Young, you know, a, a group of people reach an area and go, okay, this is it. Um, so, so what's the, the genesis for cities and, and is there just one or are there multiples? There are multiple paths to the genesis of cities. Um, you know, Max Weber uh, in the early 20th century said, you know, there are cities of the prince. There are consumption cities. There are production cities. And um, um, uh, the city of the prince is a good is a good start for the ancient city. Um, but you said what I really think is the most common is how villages come to blur together. The Greeks referred to this as synoikismos, literally living together. And I call it, the translation of that would be village amalgamation. I think in many parts of the world, the, the, the earliest cities uh, formed by <clears throat> combining villages. We know that the city of Gyeongju in Korea um, it was six villages. We know the moment that they decided to to get together and form a city. That's a, in, in a historical record. Um, but I think it's very common that it happened that way because villages are kind of a practice nucleation for cities. So when they got to be a certain size and were close together, they naturally would come together like Rome. Uh, the Palatine Hill and the Quirinal Hill sort of amalgamated to, to form the core of that ancient city. But I do think there are multiple paths. Not everyone has to do it that way. And that there are cases where somebody probably said, let's settle down here, and it starts to accrete, as it were. Okay. Is there, are there records? I mean, let's take a little twist in the modern world. You now have some capitals of some countries uh that they're moving the capitals because their current city is so like cairo their national mm -hmm. capital is being created because it is so impossible to get around and and they're <laughs> wanting more modern perspectives of it are there any records in the ancient world where you have like um a, a people forming a city and then the decision is made that it's going to its core is going to change because of either um reasons or or uh, you know vegetation regions or, or water or, or water again mm -hmm. uh, do you have well, some examples of those well the the whole look at washington dc yeah, washington dc yeah. is a compromise location because the southerners didn't want it in philadelphia new york or new york because then that would give priority to the mid-atlantic mid and new england states so they wanted a neutral spot 
And so uh, this swamp of Washington, where Washington, <laughs> D.C. is, was chosen. This is called a disembedded capital, and Australia's Canberra and Brazil's Brasilia yeah. are examples of this also. In the ancient world, we think in the valley of Oaxaca, uh, the, the, per, perhaps the first city in Mexico is Monte Alban, and um, it, uh, it may be something of a compromise between the three arms of the Valley of Oaxaca, although I think there was military conquest involved in that also. But there is the possibility that, that uh, uh, as compromise um, between communities, there is some idea of, let, let's put this city here for whatever reason. And I frankly hadn't heard the idea that Cairo was now so impossible to deal with that they were thinking of moving, you know, the seat of government. But it, it, it is basically the same kind of process in that uh, you want to um, uh, make it convenient for a capital city. In the ancient world, you want your capital city where, you know, the most commerce and the most population is, even if it's inconvenient, because, you know, Rome was very inconvenient, but it's the capital of a huge empire. Brett? You talked about mostly um, stone construction in these cities. Is Would it be mm -hmm. possible that there were uh, primarily wooden cities and they just haven't survived um, archaeologically, or is well, there something about stone that... I I I really I'm I am a little bit biased and I might be wrong about this but I don't see any really good um evidence for say wooden cities um and you know archaeologists are pretty good we we can recognize wood traces in the ground they it's perishable but it doesn't disappear that much the the better except uh, question about this is that the probably the earliest Chinese cities are made from pounded earth, and so that tends to dissipate a little more easily. But it is pretty, it it is a a kind of hard pounded earth, but um, um, it isn't like quite like stone. Um, that's probably the best example, but. It's interesting that in the Ch Chinese case, you know, we're, we're arguing now whether you, you have cities without states, which is a question that, that arises, that is, cities without civilization. Um, and that's a hard question, and China has been brought up as a possible example, but, you know, even the city, the first city early too, despite being mostly pounded earth, I think has some pretty... Um, uh, durable archaeological remains so that it's it's clear to see that that was a big place. Terry. Yes, uh, Glenn, you mentioned that um, Cahokia doesn't yeah. fit your definition of a city. Can you elaborate on that? <laughs> this is where I, I do get in trouble. I, I know that North American Americanists are generally going to be unhappy with me. Um, and, okay, the last case in my book is Great Zimbabwe in Zimbabwe. Now, it's, made, it's a city made of natural granite blocks, okay? And it has some standardization in it. Um, if you look at a reconstruction of Great Zimbabwe and Cahokia, you'd say, hey, Story, come on, they're pretty similar. Why are you saying one is a city and one isn't? Um, and the other important thing is, 
um, whether there's a first city or not, very soon in the same culture they appear right away and there are more. And Great Zimbabwe, there are 20 other sites that are like that, made of stone and have standardization, and so there are multiple sites. Cahokia does not have standardization. It is made of perishable material. Monk's Mound looks like it took 300 years to construct, um, whereas the, uh, the Zimbabwe uh, stone structures are maybe 10 at most 20 years. After all, the Great Pyramid was probably built in 15 years in Egypt. Um, and so Cahokia lacks the, the durable structures, doesn't seem to have any standardization, and is totally alone in the landscape of North America. Okay. Um, Glenn, I think I'm going to get the honor of having the last question here okay. um, for this segment. I, so we've talked about the origins of cities. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the destruction or the end of cities um, you know, obviously you can end in all sorts of ways. I'm thinking of Vesuvius, uh, of uh, Pompeii, and mm-hmm. uh, and Copan, for example, where, where you have, you know, one a disaster and one people literally just sort of walking away. Right. Um, but are there any trends archaeologically that we see that, that sort of identify the demise of a city? Well... Yeah, I mean, Teotihuacan is a great, well, Copan's a pretty good example, and Teotihuacan is certainly a good example. And it, it, uh, it is possible that Teotihuacan, and, and this may be also for other places like uh, Angkor Wat in, in Cambodia, is that there is a climatic downturn that really makes the, uh, the system fail. And Teotihuacan, um, may have been done in, as it were, by what we call the 536 event, which is now 536, 540, and 547. (laughs) In those three years, but probably most 536, there was a huge, probably volcanic eruption. It may have been Ilopongo in El Salvador, but, but we still don't know, and we're not sure about 540 and 547. If you look at the temperature trends that have been very year-by-year year known since about A.D. 1, uh, you see this huge dip in 536. And what happened is that um, it looks like a nuclear winter, Chinese sources and the Roman historian Procopius say the sun looked weak and there was no summer. Just like when Tambora exploded in 1815 in Indonesia, there was no summer in 1816 in Europe. Um, and uh, this would, this seems to have been a tremendously um, destructive event for Teotihuacan and other places. Um, in the Maya region, Tikal goes what they call the hiatus. Um, so, you know, just like everything else, disasters, even if they're on a worldwide scale, tend to have greater effects um, in different places, different effects. Um, Teotihuacan, though, looks like it had a, a, a disastrous response to that and never recovered. Now, we don't know what happened, but the center of Teotihuacan is burned, and the outlying structures are not. 
it looks like an inside job. It, it may have been a revolt, as if the people were saying, hey, um, we've had this natural disaster, and you kings did nothing about it, and you couldn't stop it. And so the center of the city may have been burned uh, in, a, in an insurrection. We don't know. Um, but, you know, it does seem like many of these wonderful cities that we see have had uh, climatic episodes that, that caused their downturn. All right. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KLA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 406th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer is Dave Baker, our program manager is Rick Sweet, and the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zap Zaptel. My name is John Keeley. And my name is Jay Swords. We'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Glenn Story, Associate Professor of Classics at the University of Iowa, who's been talking about the archaeology of ancient cities. The history buffs for today's show were Brett Menard and Terry Toppler. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pulanala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Good night.